Hello, and thank you for tuning into Answers from the Lab, where we share Mayo Clinic knowledge and advancements on the state of testing and science from laboratory leaders and the people who are making it happen behind the scenes. I'm Dr. Bobby Pritt, the Chair of the Division of Clinical Microbiology in the Department of Laboratory Medicine and Pathology at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. With me today is Dr. Bill Maurice, the Chair of the Department of Laboratory Medicine and Pathology at Mayo Clinic and the President of Mayo Clinic Laboratories. This is our weekly discussion with Dr. Maurice in which we learn about updates in the field of laboratory medicine and pathology. Well, Bill, welcome back. Yeah, another weekly conversation. So mm -hmm. we've had quite a few and there I enjoy them immensely and it looks like people do as well because they do tune into some of our podcasts. So Yeah, I got some comments the other day when I was walking through one of our laboratories out of our downtown site and people just stopped me as I was walking through the lab and said, oh, thank you for doing the podcast. So that was really great to hear that people are tuning in and hopefully getting some good messages out of this. Yeah, exactly. So what's on your mind today? Well, I was thinking that maybe it's time for us to address some of the misinformation, something we've done a number of times actually on this podcast, addressing misinformation. But there's some new things that have been circulating about COVID-19 that from a laboratory standpoint, unfortunately, some of it's just misleading or even incorrect. And I think we really need to kind of set the record straight. Yes. The only thing circulating faster than the Omicron variant is probably the misinformation, misinformation. around COVID. <laughs> yeah. Let's dive in. Well, one of the first things I thought we could tackle pretty quickly is that there were some posts on social media that mistakenly interpreted the package inserts, the instructions that come with PCR tests, saying that you would get false positives with a COVID-19 PCR if you have other viruses, such as influenza. Unfortunately, it was just someone who had misinterpreted the information. These manufacturers, when they make these tests for SARS-CoV-2, they have to show that it's really specific and that it doesn't cross-react with any other virus. And in this one package insert, it showed a whole list of all the viruses they test it against and showed it was not detectable. So I think that's something just to say is that the PCR tests that are on the market that have received emergency use authorization by the FDA for SARS-CoV-2 are very specific. They will not have a false positive result with other viruses. And that's why PCR has remained the gold standard throughout, right? Because it's very sensitive and very specific for SARS-CoV-2. Mm -hmm. The way that the tests work, looking for very specific sequences in the virus that aren't present in other viruses. And in fact, it, some of the concern has been with some of the variants is that as they mutate, that some of those sequences that the tests look for might actually change and make the test less sensitive. Cross-reactivity with other viruses has not been a concern at all with the PCR tests. To your point, though, laboratory science can be a complex field. And when you have people that don't have the background looking at things, they can, they can get confused. Yeah, so I think that was important to set straight. And, and we actually had some information from Mayo Clinic Laboratories on Twitter, if people want to look at that as well. But yeah, I think we could have faith in the PCR tests, specifically the ones in the United States. We know they've all received that emergency use authorization from the FDA if they're being produced by a commercial manufacturer. They're very specific, as you said. Exactly. And I think there's even information on those tests on, through the FDA website. I think if you mm -hmm. search, then you can actually see for yourself what was submitted and how, why the EUA was granted. So, so yes, I agree. People can be confident in the tests and even confident the way that the laboratory works in validating the test. Because the other thing that's come up, of course, again, again, 
is the crossing threshold or CT value or how many times you run the PCR before you call it positive. Those are things that the labs all work on and validate. It's not like we just make up a number. So people should remember and know that actually the laboratory is actually one of the most regulated areas in healthcare. And this is well pre-COVID. So we're really held to a very high standard. And we would hold ourselves to that same high standard because we want to give people the right information. Yeah, we're all about quality in the laboratory and we're highly regulated and have processes for everything. So yes, rest assured that we have a very rigorous process for validating any new test. Exactly. And that's something that will continue to come up. And it's also important to remember, as I'm sure we'll discuss, that any test has to be taken in the clinical context in which it's being offered too, when you think about false positives and all that kind of stuff. So, Well, the other thing I wanted to mention is I've been seeing some opinion pieces where people have said that perhaps PCR tests for COVID-19 are obsolete, that we don't need them anymore because antigen tests provide all the information that you need. And I think that's another bit of misleading information because as you and I know, uh, PCR tests are our most sensitive tests out there. And I think that for confirming acute infection, they're really still our gold standard test. That's right. The role of the laboratory is to provide the most accurate answer as quickly as possible to the patient and their provider so they can make a decision with that result. Antigen tests have the advantage in that they can be point of care or in your home. So they're mm-hmm. more accessible. So they give you the answer more quickly, but they don't have the same level of sensitivity to your point as a PCR test. So they have a role. Uh, mm-hmm. People should remember, I mean, antigen tests have been around for a long time. Our ability to do them has been around for a long time. We haven't done a lot of them for respiratory viruses because most often we wanted to do a PCR type of a test to give, make a really accurate diagnosis. It's just within a pandemic, you have so many people needing to know if they have COVID. There's been innovation around improving those tests, but still in all, they're an important tool, but they don't replace the PCR test to your point. And that's really where we're in laboratories. We have to be very engaged, again, as laboratory professionals, helping to explain people the difference between different tests, where they might be applicable, where they might not, why you might need one versus the other. As you know, Bobby, that's a lot of what we do even for the physicians that we work with, right? Yeah. Um, that's one reason why pathologists are called the doctor's doctor, because we're often consulted with by other providers to say, what's the best test for this question? Yeah, we have to be good communicators and be able to talk to a number of different audiences. So our fellow colleagues, other physicians, but then also the general public, people in the laboratory, so many different people that would benefit from having conversations with their pathologists and laboratory scientists to really understand the tests that they're ordering for their patients. Exactly. Or it makes sense of the results. And it's interesting, I know you have, of course, a very strong background in education. One thing a lot of people might not know is that one thing that has evolved in the education of laboratory medicine and pathology residents is they actually have to demonstrate competency in communicating with clinicians mm-hmm. around some of these issues. I mean, that's how important it is to our profession. That's something people should know. So it's not like we're just worried about putting tests out there and telling people to right. figure it out, right? We're really all about which tests you should use and what should you do with the result. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so let's just delve quickly into that issue of our PCR tests obsolete for SARS-CoV-2 testing. I think we know the answer is no, but when would you use an antigen test versus a PCR test? We've touched on this before in some of our previous podcasts, but probably good to just reiterate it here. So as you mentioned, Bill, antigen tests 
are relatively fast, 15, maybe 30 minutes. Some can be done in the comfort of your own home, but they're not as sensitive. They'll miss about half the cases that would be detected by PCR. And there have been some studies that have shown that during that period where your antigen test is negative, but your PCR test is positive, you could go out and still be spreading virus to other people. You could be infectious in that early period before your antigen test turns positive. Yeah. So if you have a negative antigen test, but you're feeling sick, you really need to follow that up with a more sensitive test like PCR. You can't just say, oh, well, I'm feeling sick, but my COVID test was negative. So I'm good to go to this party or go see my relatives. Yep. And I think a lot of this has come up again, because with this Omicron surge, we saw some of the issues that we saw in the early 2020 around testing kind of revisited. I know for one of my family members, he needed to be screened before he was going to travel for work. He went and waited three hours for a PCR test and didn't get the result back in time to know if he could was safe to travel. So I think, again, people are like, well, does that mean there's a problem with PCR tests? And I think what we have to remember is that's just a challenge with the pandemic is just mm -hmm. really overwhelming the system. And I do think that one thing that's coming out of the pandemic, and the pandemic's not over as we get through it, is to your point, putting real thought into what are the different ways these tests can be used? What do we do when there's a big spike in demand in terms of making tests accessible? Because a lot of the PCR does have a fixed capacity in the laboratory. You know, it can only run so many. It's mm -hmm. a more difficult to scale. That's why there's this big investment on engine tests. Doesn't mean they replace them. Doesn't mean it's obsolete. This need, means that we had to put a lot of thought into how to use all the tools we have available, depending on the situation. And there could be well be a role for antigen tests going forward for many of the same, the accessibility, the convenience, some of the things to describe, especially, you know, I think about communities but that have difficulty getting access to testing, that these could really be helpful. One of the really cool areas of innovation I just saw last week as well demonstrated is that there's a lot of concern, of course, around testing. For some of the self-administered tests, you have to go online and do a Zoom and have someone guide you through it. There are people now developing phone apps that can actually scan yeah. your test, give you instruction on how to do the test, help you interpret the test, so that, and, and then upload it so your provider can see the test. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of gaps still in terms of how engine tests and these things all work, but it's quite amazing the innovation that's happening to fill those gaps. Yeah, I agree, Bill. And it doesn't have to just be antigen tests. There are tests like PCR, other nucleic acid amplification tests that could be done in a similar way that you could actually now order on Amazon and get in your home and perform and then get a result and have that result displayed on a neat little app on your phone. So I think that's going to help as well. It's not that antigen tests are inherently better at being able to be used in the home. We now know with some of these new innovations that these PCR-like tests can also serve that role. And we also know that there's some point-of-care PCR tests that will give you a result in about 30 minutes. It's just, it's supply and demand, limited supply, high demand, and the fact that when everyone wants a test and you have a limited number of instruments and tests, there's going to be delays. It doesn't necessarily mean that a system doesn't work well. It's really just well, it's the limitations that we're in because we're in a pandemic. Yep. And that, that's going to be what we have to manage through as we get through this. And hopefully we'll be through it here soon. But the other thing that will be interesting, though, is how all this is going to change just people's approach to managing their health going forward between having yeah. tests that are accessible, remote visits. There's all, all kinds of things. You look at even pharmacies that have been much more engaged in testing. So Amazon, to your point, 
it's going to be really interesting at some point because all this infrastructure is going to be built. And at some point, the pandemic demand will go away, but the infrastructure will remain. Mm-hmm. And I think people's expectations on how to use it will, will change too. Again, a lot of these things have been available for a long time, but people's willingness to use them, all the other things around their use that you need to make them helpful, those are things that are going to really that'd be changed by COVID. And we're going to have to really watch. They really have changed. People now know what an antigen test is or what PCR is, which is something that 10 years ago, five years ago, even two and a half years ago, I would say that it, they were not part of the general lingo for the general public. I guess the last thing I'll mention kind of goes along with this then, um, which has to do with when you are doing your own test, it's important to follow the instructions. And if you don't follow the instructions, you could get a false result, either a false negative or a false positive. And so the third myth to debunk is that you should go off label and swab your throat for COVID-19 because the Omic- there's been some evidence that the Omicron variant might be more detectable in your throat, but that's really not a good idea, you no. know, especially when you're using a test that is only validated for use with a nasal swab. That's right. If the test gets really approved for that use, great. But if it's not, that means it hasn't been studied and that means you can't trust the result. It might make sense. There's real things too, like around the engine tests and many of them had to be read within a certain time frame. One thing that's come up is that there are a number of visually impaired people in the world, even visually impaired healthcare providers, right? And so that's why there's a real interest again in phones and other things that can help read these tests. Those will be the tools I think that we'll see come that will help people because it's, it's, it's confusing. I haven't given myself an, two different antigen tests. Mm-hmm. They were totally different. I had to read the instructions a couple of times to make sure I was doing it right. It sounds great, but they're really not, yeah. they're not always easy to use, I should say. No. And like you said, if you don't read it within a certain period of time, some tests actually be, uh, give you a false positive result over time, or you may get a false negative if you don't follow it in the right order of steps. And so I could just imagine someone trying to perhaps swab their throat. Well, what part of your throat do you swab if you're not following the instructions that specifically show you? Some people might swab their tongue. Some people might try to stick the swab all the way back into their tonsils. You're using a swab that's not designed to go into your mouth. There's a choking risk. So there's all sorts of things, all sorts of reasons why you wouldn't want to ever go off label with any of these tests that you perform yourself. Yeah. And I guess that brings us full circle because off label also means where you're getting your information. So, you know, and that's the danger of social media. You've done a lot. Our colleague, Dr. Binneker, Dr. Yao, just from Mayo alone, myself, have spent a lot, you know, there's things that are in the media that we have done and in addition to these podcasts. And that's really what people should look to, whether it's Mayo Clinic or if it's another healthcare organization you really trust because even some of the lay press to your point can be misleading so really going to those sources is important and if you have questions really looking to those sources for your answers well said well i think that was pretty good we covered a number of different uh, bits of misinformation there yeah we did i'd like to say we won't have to do it again but oh i'm sure we will probably will so (laughs) well and so it gives more to talk about That's right. Well, until next week, Bill, have a great week and stay warm. Yeah, I'll do my best. You too. Okay. Thank you so much for tuning in to Answers from the Lab. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast and don't forget to tune in every Thursday and every other Tuesday.